0: We're going to welcome a good friend of the program, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, Ian Tostenson, is on the line. Hi, Ian. Hey, Jordy. Nice to have you back on the radio. Oh, thanks. It's good to be filling in. I got a nice little stretch here as Jill's filling in for Simi, just doing what I can to help out. And You know, I want to check in with you because the restaurant... Industry is such a hot topic, a necessary topic as we try and save as many local businesses we can during COVID-19. And you, you're seeing on Twitter what I'm seeing on Twitter, the bounce back and forth, the news yeah. coming out now that the Calgary's looking at lifting the restrictions, the numbers, the, the 50% capacity that, that here in BC we, we definitely have in place. What, what are you seeing now that, that we are, are solidly, I guess, in, into phase two here with regard to our restaurants?
1: Yeah. So we're heading to, thanks, Jody. We're we're heading for phase three, maybe next week. We've only been, you know, it's really only been since June 1st that restaurants have been operating and, you know, and, and there's some really interesting um, trends we're seeing there, but I think there is a, there is a uh, certainly behind the scenes, a recognition that at 50% capacity, a restaurant uh, can't make it. So, initially when we put in the guidelines to the government, we su- we suggested they do social distancing or physical distancing. And so they wouldn't deal with capacity, so it didn't matter. But we're seeing now, I think Dr. Henry's acknowledging it, and so far, so good. I think she's been quite impressed. And so am I uh, for the restaurants. What they've done in 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 uh, in in some in a topic that they've never had to experience before, they've done a really good job about this, and a very responsible job of taking it seriously. So I would say that we'll start to maybe see some increase in capacity, um, and that's what Calgary's done. They're, they're sort of saying, look, we don't have the capacity now. We just have, you must maintain social distancing. So I think that's where we're headed. If we, if we do that here and if we add the patio piece, which you sort of initiated about three weeks ago on a Sunday afternoon, and now we've got every municipality in B.C. clamoring to uh, utilize public space for increased patios, then I think we can see some responsible increase in capacity, which will really help the industry, provided we get some sun.
0: Right. We do need that piece to be sitting outside. Mind you, people just go and sit in the, the misty rain and 20 degrees at this point, because we all just want to yeah. get out and sort of see each other from a physical distance. I did speak with uh, Delta counselor uh, Dylan Kruger, uh, yesterday on the program about what Delta's been doing. I actually wrote about it in my piece in the Orca. Go to the to, to to read about it. Because I just, I was so inspired by the words he was using. I mean, municipal politics and things like we went out and actively looked to our small business, to our restaurants and coffee shops and said, what do you need? And then we did what made the most sense. And we tried to get to yes and then got it done. And it's already implemented. Things seem to be a bit slower at the bigger levels, perhaps, in, in terms of uh, a populace, uh, the bigger levels pointing to City Hall at 12th and Canby? Because we, yeah. what are you hearing or what do you expect tomorrow when uh, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart is is holding his emergency council meeting about patios?
1: I think the mayor's going to make it happen. I think, you know, what we're seeing, what we're seeing this all through government, this is not a criticism, is that you know, government, uh, we're, government bureaucracy is not trained to handle a crisis. You know they're, they they've been operating in a whole different competency and you know and, a, and one that's um, very systematic and so this is it's chaos. Every day we think of something new we can bring to the industry that might give them a fighting chance, just a little inch to move their businesses ahead. And otherwise, if we don't take that approach, then we're going to see a complete disaster more than the disaster we're seeing right now. And so when the mayor reached out to the industry about two weeks ago, we had a good chat with him and said, look, we were frank with him and said. You got to make it happen. You got to change your model. You can't be, you know, making this too formal. And so they're loosening up in Vancouver. And okay. tomorrow is is uh, as a meeting that he's called on his own to try to get capacity increased in Vancouver and deal with breweries, which is great. So I think everybody's on board. It's taken the government a so while well to sort of realize that they can actually the, the the decisions they they can make or don't make will have a real impact on not just restaurants but business in general.
0: I agree with that, Ian, and and looking at your website, that bcrfa.com, boy, you have it so laid out there, every piece of information, how to be yep. safe, how to set up properly, how to do this the right way That that perhaps if the small businesses, if the restaurants could step up and say, okay, I'm going to follow this roadmap that you've laid down for me. And then I'm going to contact the city and say, help me get to where I need to be. Let me use the parking lot next door. That's empty because people aren't coming to our area the way they were before. And then we can look at this as a growing opportunity and not have to go through this all over again next year. Because this is going to be with us for quite some time. That's the sort of the the prevalent theme here is we got to set ourselves up for the long haul. and, And restaurants need to be able to survive that.
2: Yeah,
1: and I, and I appreciate your comments on BCRFA.com. Uh the, the 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 core group of people in this organization have worked tirelessly, and and that all that information. I just I got to sort of do a shout out to ourselves here. It was acknowledged personally by the premier, the lieutenant governor. We received a call. I received a call thanking us for that. The Go materials ahead. have gone into Australia and New Zealand now as documents they can look at, in terms of helping their industry. We're doing we've done some seminars in Ontario, and I told the premier we're going to make him proud and make a BC solution that he can travel. And that's, and, it's, and that's exactly why we wanted to do it. Jody is to give the government confidence that these restaurants are running with very tight standards and strict protocols. And by doing that, then give them now, you know, give them some liquor policy changes and give them more patio space because they're demonstrating they can do it responsibly. And then, you know, certainly number one is the safety of the public and, um, I'm really proud of industry. They've really pulled banded together. I think I've never seen this before. They're working, you know, they're, they're, they're in stride, all of them. which is really
0: cool. Yeah, we're talking about how we're nearing that sort of first two weeks of phase two and and really seeing our, our friends who are small business owner operators of restaurants and some of the bigger ones as well that really do rely on tourism, at like the cruise ship industry, I think about those downtown restaurants that are just built to be the place that everybody floods into Vancouver and and, and takes in the culinary brilliance of our local foods and, and how that's just not happening. Like, how do we keep everybody uh, making ends meet here from the the littlest of mom-and-pop shops to the ones that might be the five-star biggest restaurant in Canada? Still, we need to be concerned about Everyone. And I, I do follow chef uh, David Hawksworth on social media. And and Ian, he's been calling for there to be some sort of um, some give from the provincial and federal level on uh, costs associated with running a restaurant. And and there was a little bit of relief with regard to the cost of liquor and, and being able to provide that uh, with takeout, which has been yeah. uh, wildly successful. And I don't think there have been any major downsides to that, have there?
1: No, nothing but, but upsides, and uh, you know the private liquor stores who were uh, primarily doing that delivery uh, really cooperated with the restaurant industry to, uh, and that that's just this whole industry pulling together. You know, it's worked that's out really fantastic. well. I mean, it, it uh, and it, you saw some really creative things. Uh, restaurants have developed marketplaces where they can sell their lettuce and their toilet paper and they offer wine and food and, you know, meal kits and stuff. And so the there's no end to the lot of the innovation that happened in the industry, because you're right. We're going to be um, 15 months at least without any significant tourism. Well, maybe even more uh, yeah. without any tourism dollars here. And so we've, I, someone said this really well, restaurants are going to be our only form of entertainment. Really. When you think about it for a long time, there's no concerts and no sporting events, et cetera. So I think you know our idea is to help raise the confidence of people going out and uh, dine, and and remind people that even Dr. Henry is saying go out and dine, get out in patios, go out and socialize, do it properly. But yeah. um, I, you know, then I think if we put on the intra tourism piece when we get the all clear signal and start to sort of eat, drink, uh, BC as we say, um, we yeah. might be able to fill in some of that tourism gap. But right now. So volumes in Vancouver for a lot of the restaurant big restaurants are 25 to 30 percent of what they were last year. and if you go into the suburban markets, so though, the markets are more like 70 to eighty percent of volumes. and in some cases restaurants in the suburban areas are even stronger than last year. so it's some really weird stuff going on. but downtown Victoria and downtown Vancouver really have a hard time because the office workers aren't there the office crowd is staying home.
0: Right. There's that as well. Is, is it realistic to hope that maybe there might be some tax break, some sort of financial relief with regard to, I mean, the the highest and best use tax comes to mind for me. We've already seen restaurants impacted and closed because of that property tax piece.
1: Yeah, the, 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 that property tax stuff is still out there. I don't think it's really been dealt with correctly or, or properly yet. So for your listeners, that's, you know, they go tax a property at its highest and best use, not necessarily its current use. So if you have a restaurant, but it could be an apartment building, you're paying taxes at the apartment building level, not the restaurant level. Um, there, of course, you know, CERB, the wage subsidy programs are great. The one that kind of sucks is still the rent program to the federal government. That needs a lot of changes. But if we can get those changes made and uh, and sort of force the landlords into accepting that. So basically, that program will allow a landlord to receive three quarters of the rent, uh, and in many cases, besides zero. But we're not seeing a lot of cooperation by landlords on that. But that uh, program, uh, financed by the provincial government and the federal government, would go a long way to cash flow a lot of these businesses and give them a little bit of an upstart. Um, but apart from that, some of the other provinces have done small grants of $5,000. The BC government's deferred a lot of, you know, employers' health tax and PSC, but the deferrals, it's kind of like, okay, Jody, and, you know, on October 1st, you know, a whole bunch of money. So these are all things we're still trying to smooth out here because we're a long way away from getting out of the woods, and mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of these programs will have to be ex- extended and enhanced. The one thing that we are hoping to happen, and this is public, and the minister has mentioned that, and he's just been so awesome, is uh, Minister Eby has been uh working to see if the industry can be the benefactor of wholesale pricing uh for restaurants on liquor because we talked about this before liquor restaurants pay retail prices. So there mm-hmm. might be a bit of a break and that break will help, you know, the profitability of, of the restaurant who has virtually no money right now. So there's there's still lots of things to come. And, um, but it's just, you know, it takes time because they're all, if if there's a dollar attached to them, it takes some time for government to sort of work through this and see what the implications are.
0: No question about that. Got a few minutes left here. And I want to touch on this from the other side of the restaurant industry. While we're talking about inside, we're front of house, back of house costing and rents and what have you as a patron in this new normal, what do we need to keep in mind? I saw um, one friend of mine who was in the industry um, sort of list off a number of things that I was like, Oh yeah, of course. Oh my gosh. We should share that. Like the, the go in, don't, don't linger for hours, go in, have a meal, tip big, you know, and then get out yeah. so we can turn the table. So we can, you know, it's the little things here too.
1: <laughs> tip, I love that. So yeah, be patient. Uh, it's going to take a little bit longer because you know, there's social distancing and, and physical in the kitchens uh, there's capacity issues. A server, uh, we wrote this weekend, a server said that um, they're just kind of get back into it. They've been sort of furlonged and not out in the public, so they're getting used to seeing the public again. So there's a whole bunch of adjustments in a, in a world that we've never operated before. But um, you're seeing um, downtown is more concerned, the uh, patrons are more concerned about masks in mm-hmm. suburban areas. They go, what, why do you need a mask? So it's, there's all these different little twists. Um, you'll see, um, some, some restaurants, your favorite restaurant, um, has done clear masks. So you can actually see the faces of the people, which is good. So, um, that's going to last for a while, but get in, get out, tip big is right. Um, you know, and, and just follow the rules, like no more than six people, keep your distance, uh, you know, washrooms, if they say only two people or one person, just, just follow that. And it's a great experience. It's not a bad experience. It's just, it's a little bit different, but it's still fun. And it's still fun to go out and have that food and wine you missed. So from that point of view, uh, it's good. But we've got about 30% of the population that still is um, show and tell me before I go out. So we have to work on the confidence of the consumer.
0: Yeah, no question. Some people have a a different level of risk when it comes to sort of easing back into this and growing their bubble, uh, because you might have somebody who's, you know, at risk in your home, or you might be caring for an elder. There are all these things. But going back to the server, I mean, having been one, don't run your server. Don't, don't. Can I have another lemon? Can I have another side of this? Can I have another? Yeah. Like, let's, let's like think about this. Let's, let's take all, all of those things into consideration. I, I I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but I will. And I mean it to be funny. So nobody take this personally. If you're a Karen, <laughs> don't be a Karen. Just don't be a Karen here. And if you're yeah. taking out, right? Like, take out, tip like you're eating in. And what about delivery services? I've only got 30 seconds here, but using delivery service versus doing the, the pickup at the restaurant.
1: The best way to pick up. Of course, that's got a whole bunch of issues, um, but certainly order. I mean, Skip the Dishes and Uber, those guys, and, we're, and I'm trying to get those. We're trying to get their fees down temporarily because they're really expensive, twenty to thirty percent. That's
0: yeah. what they charge so the mindful.
1: restaurant for the service. And um, you know, it, they're, they're slowly sort of thinking, seeing it. But I said, if you don't do that, we're not going to have an industry. So we're trying. Yeah, you're to not going to have a restaurant
0: that. to pick up from. Yeah, Ian, uh, as or always. Or a bottle of wine. Quarter, order a bottle of wine for that. sure, and maybe right. some local local craft beer. Ian Tostenson, <laughs> always a pleasure to chat <laughs> with you, tip, my friend. Thanks. Thank you. Tip, <laughs> thanks, Jody. Huge. Your server could very much use it, and it pools into the kitchen as well. This next conversation is a really important one to have. It's a long long overdue confidence for some people who have been sadly the target of workplace racism uh, are speaking up uh, finally. And telling their stories and looking for relief from what's kept them silent for so long. A recent viral story, you may have seen it on Instagram, you may have heard about it in the news. It's definitely blowing up. It's been between the Vancouver Candle Company and the owner of Warner McDaniel Agency. Now this blew up so loudly with such shockingly racist screen gabs. It just made you sick to your stomach just to see this roll by on your Instagram feed used usually pictures of sourdough bread and and puppies. But here we were staring down racism, shocking racism right here. Very eye-opening that the reality here is that racism in the workplace is very much a problem in our province, in our city. So when it happens to you or around you, do you know what to do? So I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure that I do. I'm not sure that I know how to properly handle it. There's so many questions around this. So for a roadmap on sort of navigating racism in the workplace, we welcome to the show someone who certainly knows. Natasha Tony is with us, the CEO of Elevate Inclusion Strategies, a labor relations specialist. Natasha, thanks for doing this. Hi, good afternoon. These are some really difficult questions to sort of open up because it almost I feel lesser than because I really don't know what the answer is to a question like, what if the boss is a racist and you need the job? What do you do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because I want the answer to be you stand up and and somebody steps in for you and you have a way to push back on that. But so many people uh, are, are struggling with this in silence. We are finding out.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think that my answer is twofold. And, you know, I want to say that there should be policies in place that address discrimination in the workplace, that employers have a responsibility um, under occupational health and safety to ensure that we have uh, a work environment that's free of harassment and discrimination. And so I can say, on the surface, there needs to be policies, there needs to be an understanding, there needs to be proper onboarding. But I also want to talk about, um, and and what you just brought up, is that the consequences and the stakes for coming forward, especially for Black, Indigenous, and people of colour, often means that the policies don't actually work and that we are left feeling like... Um we have to prove that there were microaggressions, that there were racist comments, that the impact of this behavior is impacting us at work. And uh, often what will happen is the start of constructive dismissal and the consequences for people. I also think it's really important for us to talk about um, non-union uh, work environments as well as union unionized work environments and what that can look like, too. Well, unpack that for me. Sure, I can for sure. So um, first of all, in any organization, having policies in place that address how to report discrimination such as anti-Black racism or anti-Asian racism, uh, what we're talking about um, most often right now in the last couple of weeks, but any discriminatory practices, um, there should be a policy that's clear. Uh, A policy that talks about human rights and occupational health and safety, about all our responsibilities as employers, supervisors and workers uh, in reporting when we see it um, and getting the supports that we need. That clear policy, though, if it's just on paper and nobody knows about it. Uh, and this is where onboarding and education or if there's policies in place, there's onboarding, but the policies aren't ever used and talked about and actually um, addressed, then um,
0: they're ineffective. When I talk about, oh, go ahead. No, go. I've got so many questions, but I want you to complete okay. your, your um, assessment here because you're talking about two different realities because union yeah. scenarios are very different. So to continue.
3: Well, I think that um, in non-unionized work environments, if the onboarding isn't going on, there isn't the advocacy for um, workers going forward. So mm-hmm. um, that, that can be very difficult. The advocacy, advocacy comes from uh, knowing what those policies are and knowing what the legislation is. And often what I find when we're talking about racism, this is where uh, in both unionized and non-union environments, you're, you're able to use the human rights um, Uh, code and that there are supports in place for people with human rights and also going to uh, WorkSafeBC and letting them know that there aren't policies in place um, and that there needs to be. And WorkSafeBC can at least address with the employer that they need to be in compliance with having policies that deal with these um, egregious conflicts such as racial discrimination.
2: In union
0: just, I, let me, just let me let me sure. just ensure that our listener knows you're coming from yeah. a place of knowing what you're talking about here. Natasha, yeah. Tony is a labor relations specialist here. So if somebody listening right now, go, well, that sounds easy to go to a human rights tribunal. But what do I do in the interim when I'm not getting a paycheck because I got fired because I couldn't prove that somebody was berating yeah. me? Hmm. Behind yeah. closed so, doors. Yeah. So that's that's extremely important to be able to document
3: this and to be able to bring it to human rights um, so that that is a process for folks who are feeling stuck when they don't have a union to go to. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the unionized working environment, there is a collective agreement, which is an, a collective agreement between uh, the employer and the union, and the union represents the, the employees, the workers. And so in that uh, collective agreement we'll also have language um, that is uh, related to discrimination and harassment. And it will quote the same legislation that we're talking about with Human Rights Code and the policies in place around bullying and harassment in the workplace through occupational health and safety. And so I have to tell you that in both um, non-union and, and union work environments. it is extremely important for people to know what their rights, roles, and responsibilities are. Because when a conflict hits, the first thing that we need to, to, to go to are those policies to see what it, are the next steps for us to, to go through. But I have to say, in the work that I've done, more often than not, folks haven't read the policies. And those policies sometimes haven't been updated to actually address the changes in human uh, rights codes, uh, the changes in any other legislations or regulations to deal with it. And in any good policy, there also needs to be a conflict resolution process. And so understanding that if issues come up, that they're going to be taken seriously. And when I'm talking Mm -hmm. about issues of discrimination, that needs to be explicit and clear that everybody has a right to work in a psychologically safe work environment and being discriminated against, even if it seems like um, a small thing, and we talk about microaggressions, so it could be a small offhanded comment, but usually underneath that, there's a lot of those microaggressions, and microaggressions can constitute uh, a human rights issue. Uh, and can be seen as discriminatory.
0: You were talking about how employees must be aware of their rights, how they should manage uh, a situation that, if it at all makes them feel uncomfortable, we talk about systemic racism, but also these uh, micro-racist moments. What did you call them? Micro-aggressions? Yeah, that's right. And And even the unconscious bias, right? Like there are bystanders who say something flippant and maybe they don't even know they've just said something extraordinarily racist.
3: Yeah, and I think that, you know, the important piece when we talk about unconscious bias and how these things come about, uh, so there's lots of um, folks that are doing this training, uh, access to this training and conversations uh, you can find online for sure. But when we are talking about unconscious bias, Unconscious bias affects our perception, our attitude, our behaviors, our attention, how we listen, and even our responses to people. And so a good leader is going to recognize um, and embrace the fact that um, unconscious uh, bias plays out and that if you are building an inclusive organization, you have to recognize uh, what's in place and kind of name um, that, yes, there are systemic and institutional and structural um, uh, pieces when we talk about systemic racism that have to be addressed. And then to be able to look into your organization and say, what is it that we can build and 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 start to name um, that we are actually an inclusive employer? And as an inclusive employer, you also have to recognize that there will be times where Conflict arises around uh, racial injustice that needs to be addressed and not swept under the rug
0: so Natasha, how do you suggest that everybody uh, sort of consume and address with their employees or with their colleagues? Uh, what we are seeing the shift that is currently happening now uh, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the protests that we've seen the the literally hundreds of thousands of people standing together even in a pandemic to say that specifically Black Lives Matter? How do, we, how do we get those conversations opened up in our workplace?
3: Well, I think that the conversation needs to shift from debating whether there's racism or not, and let's accept that, yes, there is racism. And with stats that recently came out, there are, um, we're in a crisis level everywhere uh, when we're talking about where racism is showing up. And so in the workplace, what I can talk about is doing the best practices. So policies, definitely that's part of it. But let's talk about the transformative piece. And this is where we need to sometimes buckle up and get uh, uncomfortable um, and actually be comfortable in our discomfort when we do this mm. work. And so creating formal Uh, diversity and inclusion strategies within an organization with an anti-oppressive lens um, is really important and that it's thorough and integrated approach, including tracking diversity-related metrics, like finding out where are our shortcomings and how we can actually uh, become inclusive. And it starts at the top. Leadership modeling and mentoring and driving the diversity and inclusion initiatives and strategies. If the leadership isn't doing it, that leaves the uh, workers open to more harm, actually. And so identify the issues and challenges and the barriers by including feedback from employees, managers, even like HR executive levels. This is everywhere uh, throughout the organization. And it's also important for unions to also examine these issues for their members within the context of representation, as well as within their own union structures. So examining those policies, Um, Don't shy away from training. And this is the other key point that I uh, am saying over and over again this week. You need to put it in your annual budget that there is training um, available and that it's not just training. It can be coaching. It can be supports in place around for your management but also for staff. It's team building but all around uh, anti-oppression and from that inclusive lens. If you have in your budget a half-day session on unconscious bias, you're not doing enough. You are simply ticking off the box of tokenism, and that's what we're trying to shift away from. We're shifting away from being performative into transformative. And so it's really about putting the proper resources in place to address these things. Um, There's lots
0: more I can talk about, but do you have another question for me? You know what? My question is, how do we find you? Because I want to connect with you when, I, when I'm when i not up against the clock and thinking I've got one more minute to ask a question. Uh, how do people get in touch with you? How do we find you and get more information?
3: Sure. Um, elevate Inclusion uh, Strategies. Uh, I, we have a website. You can follow me as well um, on Elevate on Facebook or Natasha Tony. And that is on Instagram. And
0: um, yeah, we can we can continue this conversation. And on Twitter, I started following you prior to uh, coming That's on right. today. And boy, am I ever That's glad it. I did. Buckle up for feeling comfortable with being uncomfortable in That's the conversation. Nice. Natasha, That's thank you. That's going to resonate you. with me. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. And uh, it is time for checking in with Giacchini. We're going to take you to Washington right now for our global news, Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini, to give us the very latest. And Reggie, thank you for doing this yet again. We have drama to cover.
2: Good afternoon.
0: What is going on with CNN and the Trump administration? Excuse me.
2: Yeah, so uh, CNN just putting out this uh, this kind of letter within the last 15 minutes or so, maybe the last 20 minutes, and essentially it's going after the Trump campaign uh, because uh, there was some polling out earlier this week that we had talked about that showed that the president was trailing far behind Joe Biden by as much as 14 points, uh, and that led to the Trump campaign to attempt to try and sue uh, CNN uh, because they didn't like what those polling numbers showed, and this letter from CNN says that in their 40-year history— uh, They've never been threatened with legal action before because a politician doesn't like the polling results. And when they do receive legal threats, it's usually from political leaders in countries like Venezuela.
0: Right. Reggie, like in all of your time as a as a correspondent, a producer, reporter in Washington, have you ever heard anything even remotely close to something like this?
2: No. And I mean, this is simply to try and play to Trump's base who criticizes CNN for what they see to be is a continued negative coverage of Donald Trump. And they don't like hearing uh, when the president is being painted in a negative picture, despite the fact that that negative picture uh, is accurate. Now, the, the 14 point lead by Joe Biden, that's specific to CNN. Most other polls show up between seven and 10. Uh, the point being here, the president is trailing behind the Democratic presidential nominee uh, by a good margin here, uh, regardless of what poll you're looking at. Uh, and now the president has hired a new pollster, which actually has a D rating from some of the top polling agencies in the United States. So this is just a battle uh, to try and change the topic once again.
0: As they say, you look long enough on the Internet, you're going to find the answer you want it to be. So they, we're just going to keep polling until somebody has us winning. Seems like uh, a misuse of of time during a pandemic.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the president repeatedly and the president's people will repeatedly tout polls that are either not scientific or are simply brushed aside as being incredibly partisan. And if you, if anybody pays attention to the president's uh, Twitter account, oftentimes you'll either see him tweeting Rasmussen numbers, and it's a poll that is incredibly geared towards the Republican Party and notably the president, or he'll talk about Republican Party internal polling, which shows that he has a 96% rating. It's been the same number for the last X number of months, but those are really the only polls that they'll actually... Actually, tweet about, they'll never tweet about the polls that actually show the president trailing, which are what all of the major network polls show.
0: It is really quite something. Can we talk a little bit about what Canadians are watching with regard to COVID-19 numbers very closely in the U.S.? And actually today we, we did catch a glimpse of Dr. Fauci. Uh, it, he's returned to the news cycle to, to a small degree, at least. What are you hearing uh, from south of the border? Because Terry Shinson, our news, was just saying that, that Washington, Oregon, Arizona are all seeing spikes in numbers.
2: They are all seeing spikes in numbers, and Dr. Fauci, you're right, who has kind of been sidelined now, uh, mostly because the news cycle has slightly switched, but also because the president uh, has essentially turned uh the the pandemic into something of economic recovery now so there is no more talk of the medical uh, issue uh but at the end of the day we have dr fauci uh publicly saying that this this uh disease is still a quote-unquote nightmare for him we're watching uh the numbers pop up The, the most recent map that i saw uh showed somewhere between 10 and 19 states in the u.s uh at a rate of 10 to 50 percent higher in covid cases than they were just seven days ago again uh this partly due to what we've been seeing with the ongoing protests around the country but also with the sheer fact that with every state now in some form of reopening more people are gathering around each other that's allowing for this virus to spread so there is continued fear which is also why uh, we're likely going to see these border closures remain in fact at least for another month and a bit
0: yeah, we're going to be talking to Keith Baldry about that coming up at 2.30 today because he's been watching very closely the numbers specific to Washington State uh, just south of us here in the Lower Mainland in British Columbia. But w- the numbers that we're looking at, what, what some are, are seeing, and you talked a little bit about this yesterday, m- Memorial Day weekend counts backwards to that incubation period right now. And that you were saying yesterday that Florida may be underreporting their numbers a bit to keep things sort of on the down low.
2: This is what the reporting suggests is that Florida is among a number of states, which also include Texas, which aren't putting assumed cases into their numbers, where somebody may have had the symptoms of the disease, but they weren't able to get a test, so they weren't able to get a a, a true positive. It's also the same for somebody who may have died, uh, and COVID may have been a leading cause or at least a cause of that death. But because a test wasn't performed, this notably goes to the beginning of the crisis as well, uh, because a test wasn't performed either because you couldn't access it or they weren't available, um, that the numbers should be included in the total and the total count here, which is why from the beginning, we've been hearing health experts say the numbers are likely much, much higher than what's being reported right now. Uh, but, you know, states are choosing uh, how to put things online. They're choosing what information they're going to be transparent with. And this is partly why we're now seeing the president uh, potentially choose Florida to hold the Republican convention because their numbers, yes, they're going up. They simply aren't being reported as being high.
0: Right, because it was supposed to be in South Carolina, was it not? Was it was it South Carolina? It was going to be in North Carolina. North Carolina, right, right, right. Yeah, but it's going to Democratic- possibly be in Jacksonville now? Yeah. So the Democratic
2: governor of North Carolina decided that it's simply too much of a risk to put these people into an arena. And because of that, the president pulled out. Uh, it's been a back and forth fight, but he's now decided to go for Jacksonville, a Republican city council, a Republican governor, a Republican mayor. But the city uh, essentially got an F when it held the last uh, uh, sporting event there. Uh, and because of that, there is concerns and there are concerns that this is simply going to uh, potentially be a negative now for the city.
0: It is really quite something to watch. And speaking of watching, I I did peek in on the press briefing from the White House today and the press secretary basically relaying what she says that members of the coronavirus task force have told her in private meetings when asked questions from the media about COVID-19. That just seems like an awfully dangerous game of telephone.
2: Well, I mean, this is simply what the press secretary does. You know, we talked about it yesterday, how they're there to be a mouthpiece for the president, whether or not they're kind of pushing the president's message or trying to distract from what the president's messaging has been. And when, when the press secretary says, Oh, I was talking to somebody, uh, in closed quarters off the record, uh, you know, behind a closed door, uh, it's impossible to gauge what the actual factual reality of that conversation was. You know, the press secretary, uh, press secretary today on a number of occasions was simply trying to either push the president's messaging, whether it was about that Buffalo uh, incident with the police officers and that 75-year-old man, or whether it's about renaming bases uh, from Confederate soldier names that the president wants to do. She's simply just pushing a message to say, this is what we are telling the people. And if you don't like it, we're just going to keep telling you the same message.
0: We were talking about, uh, you know, how COVID-19 numbers are, are inching ever closer, if not just about to surpass that 2 million confirmed case mark in the united states which is just a little mind-boggling when you think just a few short months back when the president of the united states was like it's gonna go away it'll be gone by april and and here we stand reggie with uh with with states that are reopening and numbers spiking and the doubling rates happen and and i'm Having Dr. or Professor, I should say, Hotez, uh, on with us, a vaccinologist um, who is in Texas, who has been very vocal about the areas of the world that he's most concerned about. And right now, ground zero for him is actually Arizona because they're about to reach their health capacity. And there will be no ignoring that, as we have witnessed in both Wuhan, China and in northern Italy. Are, Are there rumblings outside of that noisy sort of trump circle that that are are rallying to try and do something to stave off covid-19 in the us?
2: Well, I mean, look—it's it, a conversation that extends, uh, you know, outside of the reaches of the Trump administration and inside the the circles that are linked to healthcare experts who have been dealing with this for the last three months. For those on the front line uh, in hospitals uh, and healthcare centers for the last three months that have been dealing with this, uh, and for local and state officials who say we simply don't have the money and the capacity to be able to handle any kind of second wave right now, uh, particularly and especially. If the numbers continue to rise, you said Arizona again, it's a number uh, one of a number not between nine and 12 states that are just watching their numbers spike right now as the number of people gather around each other. Uh, But it is simply just a conversation that is not taking place inside the Trump administration right now, unless you're talking about how the economy is starting to recover and they're ignoring the fact that a crisis is still here.
0: That's so frightening. And it's a top down thing because then you go to uh, you, you got the House and the Senate. And and one can't work without the other moving forward. Like the, there is more than just one individual at the helm here, and it, it's it's just so mind boggling every time you and I t- touch base that that these numbers just keep going up. So it it leads to I sent you that um, SE Cup article that you likely had already seen, uh, but the op ed piece that she has written, um, the CNN uh, broadcaster SE Cup, who wrote this op ed about how. It just seems that President Trump is is most comfortable in chaos leading up to November 3rd. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I mean, look, the president uh, has made no kind of, uh, uh, fact that he likes to be the center of attention. He likes to ensure, uh, that when he is talking, that people are listening no matter what the president, uh, no matter what he's saying, if, if it's true or if it's not. Uh, you know, that article touched on a number of recent issues, uh, that have really put the president up against a wall because of his comments, whether or not it's about the, the coronavirus and how he figured that this would go away quickly and how he was, you know, wrong about testing and how the president was incorrect uh, about the impact that this would have uh, when it comes to the death toll or talking about uh, these protests that are going on, uh, you know, by you know, instead of acknowledging and 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 having a, a, an open conversation with the protesters that were trying to call for police reform and change and the end of racial injustices the president decided to send the military out into the streets uh, and talk about how he wanted to be able to throw protesters in jail for you know 10 years and, and and be able to uh kind of weaponize the military against uh these protesters constitutional right for a gathering uh to protest this is simply how the president operates he likes to be able to kind of throw spaghetti at the wall when Whatever sticks is what he's going to run with. This is how he ran in 2016 uh, against Hillary Clinton. Uh, Even despite all of the noise between both of those candidates, this is how he's opting to run now, simply because there is no real noise about Joe Biden right now. So he's just creating noise to try and create diversions.
0: Right. It's sparkly things. It's distractions. It's like we're sitting here waiting for the president to maybe step forward and address uh, the, the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests and really, really speak in in a calming way that is the expectation from the White House, from the administration, from the President of the United States, but rather today he, through his press secretary, uh, referenced um, being asked about possibly renaming some of the Confederate or slave-related statues, uh, symbols, or or bases that are named. After these people and he just came back with the my administration will not even consider the renaming of these magnificent and fabled military institutions. It's like it's almost as though everything is one upmanship. So it's it's fascinating and 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 nerve wracking to witness. I do want to ask you a bit about um, Biden. Uh, We were talking about the polls. Was it Georgia that was having those incredibly long lines of people trying to get out to vote? uh to and and i got confused about it i was like why is bernie sanders still on the ballot when he's not only dropped out but he's endorsed joe biden and i I got all the reaction on twitter because i'm no expert on u.s politics when it comes to uh choosing the democratic nominee which is why i talk to guys like you um i learned that it's about having influence on the nominee moving forward it just seems so odd that during a pandemic this is how things continue to roll out in the U S can you kind of give a Coles notes version of how this works?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the election is going to happen no matter what. And in order to get to that election, you have to have primaries. A lot of them were canceled uh, because of the pandemic. Some of them still went on, uh, like in Wisconsin, and we started to see numbers go up. Uh, you're seeing Joe Biden's uh, rather uh, Bernie Sanders name still appear on these tickets, much like you'll see uh, people like Kamala Harris. You'll see Pete Buttigieg. These names are all going to be on the tickets uh, when people go to vote in these primaries. A, because there's a time uh, frame that you have to have your name pulled off. But B, you're right. It is about influence. If you can get a a little bit of that vote, you may have a couple of delegates on the floor uh, that Joe Biden might need or that might want to go over to him. And you can say, look, you can have my delegates if you decide to do A, B or C with your platform and include things that I want. And if not, then I'll take those delegates from you. And if something falls apart, then all of a sudden you're going to be short. So there is strategy to some of the names being left on these ballots. The problem is, is that some people aren't getting to cast a ba- uh, cast a ballot uh, in states like Georgia because there was such a failure. Of of the system uh, to be able to go into a voting booth and actually push the button or tick off the name that you want. Uh, a massive failure that is being blamed back and forth. Democrats are putting it on the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State is blaming it on individual polling areas. But at the end of the day, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, there is a crisis of trying to get people to operate these polling stations and a crisis of training people. Uh, it's a failure on both parts right now, but it goes to show that there are issues when it comes to voting. And this doesn't bode well for November 3rd.
0: I know what are we like 145 days out what does what does this mean just a few short well, weeks now from now. Yeah.
2: I mean, look, there, there, there are, there are problems with voting and Georgia has been really a hotspot for, uh, for either voter, uh, suppression. This is what Stacey Abrams was running on during her failed gubernatorial bid, uh, you know, uh, in the last race. But, uh, there are, are concerns that the Democratic held areas in Georgia that didn't allow people to vote, uh, are strongly, uh, uh populated by African Americans. And there is a fear, uh, amongst some that, that the secretary of state, this Republican, uh, uh elected person uh was stopping people from being able to cast a ballot and it's because georgia which used to be an incredibly red republican state is all of a sudden a battleground and not even to be a purple state but to potentially become a blue democratic state so there are conspiracies and fears that uh Mm. there are people that are working to actively stop it from becoming a democratic uh, uh stronghold
0: wow reggie that's some big news Oh, well, that's some good fodder for those who like to email me every time you and I talk. We must be um, ruffling feathers with our conversations because people do like to chime in. Jody at CKNW.com. If you care to get involved, you can follow Reggie Cicchini on Twitter or follow me at Jody Vance on Twitter. Reggie, thank you, as always, for doing this. Thank you. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Thanks for tuning in this afternoon. Our next guest joining us on the line is none other than good friend and BCTF President Terry Mooring. Hi, Terry. Hi, Jody. Thank you for connecting with me in what must be a very busy time for you. I mean, back to school, we've gone and tested the waters. And how are teachers feeling with this new normal?
4: So I, I think you know, teachers are probably feeling pretty similar to other people. It's a pretty stressful time. Yeah. And so we have asked a lot of our teachers, you know, we asked them to wholesale take all their students to remote learning. And that was really labor intensive for so many reasons. And now, you know, we have a staged return which, you know, has it has its own complexities involved when when teachers are looking at providing both in-class and, and remote learning still. And so I would say that, um, you know, while teachers are really happy and excited to see their students, and, and that's part of the joy of the job is actually being in, in a classroom with students and being able to support their learning and to facilitate it. But on the other hand, there's a a lot of additional uh, workload on teachers right now, and so, and we're in a worldwide pandemic still. So it's a pretty yeah. There's that.
0: (laughs) <laughs> There's that worldwide <laughs> pandemic part. But even the, the, doing the in class and online, because my son is doing both. Mm-hmm. He decided to go, he's in grade seven, and he decided to go back for those four days. Uh, his Tuesday is his day. And he came back from school yesterday. And he goes, you know, because the first day back was kind of freaky for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and yesterday was more like, yeah, it was good, you know for him he's he's pretty cool about it, and the school is very very adept at social distancing. We're very lucky uh with the with the elementary public elementary school that he attends and and sort of getting used to that new normal that we will likely see for for quite some time until there's some sort of treatment here, but I can't imagine. The anxiety that might be on the other side from the teacher's perspective, because we know through the BCCDC and from the modeling that we watched with Dr. Bonnie Henry last Thursday, when it comes to the risk to children, uh, it's fairly low or when they do uh, get this virus, uh, the, the symptoms are quite mild. But that may not be the case for a 56 to even 70 year old teacher
4: well and that that's just it and so you know it's uh, and it's it's a really uncertain time so there's there's what we know and there's still the things that that are unknown as well which obviously adds to kind of the the stress of the whole thing so what we've um we've been working with school districts or local unions have to uh try to accommodate teachers that need uh, accommodations due to age or due to you know, some sort of underlying health conditions that they might have. And uh, for the most part, uh, you know, that has been fine. It, it it hasn't gone great in all cases, but certainly there are lots of districts who have really stepped up to do that. And so, you know, those teachers might still uh, remain working remotely, and th- which is where the majority of our students are still learning, is is in remote learning. And so, you know, that, that is Do you have the
0: numbers on that, Terry? Uh,
4: the have- number of, of teachers who
0: are working well, remote- remotely... Yeah, how many how many kids came back to class?
4: Sure. So what we're seeing in K to five is is about province wide about thirty five percent, and that was to be expected. Um, that's what we've seen in other jurisdictions, and that that really differs from school to school. In in some places, you know, they're kind of at capacity, which is fifty percent of density in the school. Um, but overall, it's about 35%. In grades 6 to 8, it's 28%. Right, and lower. so a little bit lower. And again, to yeah. be expected, um, when uh, students in grade 6 to 8 are um, you know, coming in for the, for the one-day week usually, and then in grades 9 to 12, uh, it's about 16%, which, again, uh, I, don't, I don't think is much of a surprise, especially with secondary students that might just be thinking that it's just easier to continue learning remotely. And perhaps that 16% reflects uh, students that want to come in and check in and and that kind of thing. And districts are handling that really differently. In some cases, students make appointments to come in and talk to certain teachers. In other cases, there's a bit of a a a by-appointment drop-in kind of time. So Mm. it really varies from district to district. But, I mean, I'm not at all surprised by those numbers.
0: Can I ask you the... uh Ten million dollar question about PPE for teachers wearing mm-hmm. masks. We've seen the big pivot, and you and I have talked about this many times before. Mm-hmm. But what's the BCtF sort of messaging when it comes mm-hmm. to mask wearing?
4: Well, you know the the recommendations around wearing masks have has has really changed and continues to evolve, and, and we've seen that certainly at a federal level um, from Dr. Teresa Tam. And so what we uh, lobbied for and and were able to achieve is that PPE is optional and teachers can choose to wear PPE and that choice must be respected. And the latter part of that was was something that we were able to achieve because it was something that, you know, was an issue. And so we were happy about that. Our position remains, though, that PPE needs to be um, supplied upon request we think it's important, an important measure. We see that some school districts and some schools, in fact, are already doing this. We would like to see that done provincially. It's not you know, a huge investment, um, but, and we think that investment is worth it in terms of the, of the safety of our, um, of our teachers and, and our students. Uh, I'm, I don't have any numbers on the number of um, students that are coming to school uh, with PPE. I'm really not sure about that. But certainly, uh, we feel it should be supplied in the school system.
0: There you go. That was what I really wanted to have you on to ask <laughs> you about. Because on Twitter, you and I have been, uh, mm-hmm. have been sort of fielding the questions. And I thought, can we just get Terry on and we'll have the conversation and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll find out. Because it is ever-evolving. And, and certainly the BCTF and the provincial government and the uh, education minister, everybody's trying to adapt and do what's best for kids and teachers and families and our community. We're in this together. So Terry, thank you for taking some time out today to just sort of put a stamp on that, where we are right now, as Mm -hmm. of this date on June the 9th, 2020. Thank you for this.
4: No problem. Thanks a lot, Jody.